Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. What if I told you there was someone who in our space, in the Bitcoin and crypto space, has had three successful exits already and has been an executive at companies like Blockchain.info, Airbnb, Uber, and now is the Director of Business Development at Kraken. That's right, Dan Held, and that's actually his last name, H-E-L-D, but now he stylizes it as H-E-D-L, like for HODL. He was just on the show, and we had a phenomenal episode talking about very, very important subjects that are not spoken about enough in crypto today. We talk about some of the things like how user experience and user interface in Bitcoin needs to be better. It needs to be better, but at the same time, maintaining user experience. Dan wouldn't know because he was part of the build-out teams of the user experience of mobile apps for Uber, for ChangeTip, Airbnb, Kraken. I mean, non-crypto companies and crypto companies. He's been part of everything. Such a great show. We talk about his article that he just published that came out and was super, super popular called Quantum Narratives about how people create different narratives and do statements of facts to basically hide their opinions and present them as facts. We talked about the state of the Bitcoin community today. And to be honest, I wasn't expecting this episode to be so personal for me. So I really hope you guys enjoy it. And I'll talk to you guys right after the end. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees, and I don't like that. So check it out, bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. I'm super excited to share that we're now working with BitPanda here at Untold Stories. BitPanda is a leading European platform for investing in digital assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Their core product is an easy to use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker 
with over a million users. How cool is that? You can not only trade crypto like Bitcoin and Ether, but you can also trade digitized gold and around 30 other digital assets. What's amazing about Bitpanda is how easy it is to set up an account within minutes and get going with the minimum amount of just one euro. So make sure you check out Bitpanda. They are a sponsor of Untold Stories. I love them, especially if you're in Europe or anywhere in the world, bitpanda.com. Thank you so much, guys. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm gonna be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them, and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the BlockWorks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at BlockWorksGroup.io. That's BlockWorksGroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today we have a person on the show whose literal last name was so perfect for Bitcoin and for crypto. Dan Held, thank you for coming onto the show today. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Dan, you you have such a colorful, interesting history in crypto. Usually when I talk to someone on the show, um, I kind of go into like their 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 background of, of pre-crypto, but I don't really know if I want to spend too much time on that because you are I kind of I kind of joke and when I was we were when our team was doing the research for the show, someone, uh Kathy, she was like this guy is like a serial exiter in the crypto space. <laughs> you know, you yeah. it, it it's so interesting. Do you mind just for a second kind of um giving us a little bit of background on your first, you know, what it was like to have that first that first exit when you were working um with uh Zero Block when you founded Zero Block and then uh blockchain.info bought the company and you became the director of product there? Yeah, that's right. So ha- yeah, happy to dive in on that. Uh, it is kind of funny, I guess, if you looked up my LinkedIn, um, most of my working career, I've been in Bitcoin. Yeah, no, <laughs> you, you you do that. And then and then you, so it, you started Zero Block, which was, I think, like the first App Store app, you know, Apple App Store app that was approved, right? Was it the first one or was one of the first ones? Yes, it was the first one with real-time market data. Okay. And due to the volatility of Bitcoin, that's a very, very critical feature. And then you, you became the director of product over a blockchain for for a year. And then you, I guess you just, you're psychologically unemployable because right after that, you started your second company. 
And then and then you started working um doing doing uh working on Change Tip and uh I remember when Change Tip launched it was so cool and it was like one of the first type of mass adoption type killer app type of companies and you did a lot of work on on uh on mobile there. And then that got bought by Airbnb. Okay. But you didn't did you stay on there? I don't I don't know. Did you stay on working, you know, for Airbnb and and just working on Change Tip under Airbnb? Yeah, so to clarify, I wasn't one of the co-founders of uh, Change Tip. Uh, that was Nick Sullivan, and uh, oh man, I'm blanking on the second co-founder. It's been been six years now. Um, but yeah, those those two guys went on to go work at Airbnb, Airbnb along with a few employees, and then I kind of split off and I went over to Uber. And then you, so then you went from that, and you took a foray out of crypto to work at Uber. And for some reason, I thought that the Uber was pre. And you did Uber for a year, and I'm interested to hear about that. Did you get bored of Uber? Because then you decided to start another crypto company, Interchange, um, <laughs> and you're the director of business development there. Were you a co-founder there? I want to make sure I have accurate. Yeah, I was a co-founder at Interchange. Okay, and then it got bought by Kraken, and now you're the director of business development over at Kraken. So congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I know the sale was only a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, it's been a man. It's been a roller coaster of a run for the last seven years. Um, but yeah, happy to dig in sequentially on on some of that work experience because there's kind of a I think there's some fun, you know, in the weeds, you know, in the trenches sort of stories to talk about there. Because as a startup founder in early crypto, as you know, you know, it was a really really new space and there wasn't a lot of uh, there weren't a lot of guidelines to help us find our way. Let's jump right in. Cool. Well, so zero block. Um, you know, I moved out to San Francisco, January, 2013. And at the time I worked at a small investment firm and they had relocated me out here. Uh, while I was working there, I got plugged in. So I, I had gotten into Bitcoin in 2012. My buddy had paid me back for a beer with a Casatius coin. And really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Most expensive beer ever. Uh, yeah, I know. Right. Of course. I, I gave all my family the coins those years during, uh, like for Christmas and, uh, till today they've not like sold the coins they still have the cassatius coins well that's awesome you've got some good hodler uh, a good hodler family <laughs> well they're not they're not like you like dan held <laughs> you know how people some people's names are what they do you know like smith is for blacksmith yeah well maybe held was for Heddle. you held you need to <laughs> legally change it to h-e-d-l i think if bitcoin hits a million dollars you know sorry parents i'm gonna apologize now but if bitcoin hits a million dollars i'll probably change my name to Heddle because Bitcoin will have- Well, what if you just added a middle name or something? You can do that. Oh. So this way you keep the, the family, you know, continuity or whatever. <laughs> that, that, that's a good idea. You know, fun fact, um, held in German actually means hero. Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. I want to tell you an interesting, an interesting little little uh, story. I know this is the untold stories of Dan, but I'm going to I'm going to take over for a second. Um, there was a kid. It's your 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 name actually reminds me of like when people call like um pin number, right? Personal identification number, number, or ATM machine, like Dan held, held, you know, so just <laughs> Dan held. There should be a, there should be a, like, uh, a, a, uh, Webster should figure out something in the English language that if you have two words back to back like that, that mean different things, you can combine them into one. Another example, there was a kid that I went to high school with, his name was Jack Sit. So the teacher would just say Jack Sit and Jack Sit would know the teacher was talking about him instead of saying like Jack Cohen sit, you say Jack sit, sit. It didn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> so the kid's name yeah. was Jack sit. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I think we uh, we need to call up Webster and uh, get this get this fixed right away. We do. So let's jump back 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 into zero block. So zero block was I I I just rem- I remember like I have you know does you know you remember these things and you can't understand why or how, but I remember that it was such a big deal when zero block launched and the fact that you could download it in the app store and it was such a big deal because I wasn't I, I didn't care about following market price and market data. But like you said, it was a first app that had real-time data. It was such a big deal at the time because, and it still is, but especially back then, it was such a big deal because it was one of those checkpoints that, you know, I feel like you had to break through in order for for this crypto thing to move forward and, you know, Bitcoin to become mainstream. Um, It was such a big deal when this was approved in the App Store. It was almost like an approval from Apple that this Bitcoin thing is, is real. Did you kind of feel the same way? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny back in, uh, so I got, I moved out to San Francisco, January, 2013, uh, got plugged into the Bitcoin meetup scene out here. And you were, you remember Jared Kenna and that whole crew. I just spoke to him last week, actually. Oh, awesome. Jared's a good buddy of mine. Um, you know, it was, Jared was hosting it at 20 mission, which was kind of a rundown hacker house. No offense, Jared. Um, and you had like, Oh, it's true. He doesn't (laughs) take offense to it because that's what it was. Right. Right. It, Bitcoin started in the weirdest, craziest spot in San Francisco. Um, but that group then was, you know, it's like Brian and Fred from Coinbase. You had uh, Jed McCaleb from Ripple, Stellar, and uh, Mount Cox. You had Jesse Powell from Kraken, uh, Charlie Lee. Uh, you had Brian Vu from Lightning. And there was only about 12 of us there in a cooler of PBRs. <laughs> so, you know, the, that was when the price was $10 or $12 in early 2013. March, people forget that 2013 had two bubbles. So we had the March 2013 bubble, and then we had the later, like November, December one. And so in the March 2013 bubble... Was the first one the, two fifth, the, like the 256 one and then yeah. back down to $100? Yeah, that's right. Oh, I got totally wrecked on that one. <laughs> I bought Bitcoin at like 200 then it went back down to 100 I sold. <laughs> I think it's, you know, I think this is a good time to for people to reflect who are listening to this call that, you know, buying Bitcoin and just because it dips right away, well... That happened to a lot of us in the early days. That's the best time to buy. Buy Bitcoin in the next hour. Let it like dump because that at least you'll get become seasoned very quickly. Totally. I think we're kind of uh, christened in the fire of volatility. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, with uh, zero block in the January in the March 2013 bubble, I was sitting there and all of us at like the, the meetup were trying to, you know, refresh our phones to check the price. But for some reason, all of the app developers at that time had only done 15-minute feeds. So the refresh rate were refreshed every 15 minutes. Um, you could get the data real-time from Mt. Gox. So I wasn't really sure why they did that. And so I didn't know anything about tech. To be clear, I was a finance guy. And so what I did is I sat down and I became obsessed with the idea of solving this problem, of solving the problem. Had you, either, had you ever done any development you know, any computer science, any, any, uh, programming or engineering at all. And when you were in high school or college, no engineering, no product management courses, no design courses, nothing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, part of it was a big chunk of luck and a big chunk of being obsessed about it. So I sat down and for, for a month, I sketched out what the perfect app would look like. What data would it have? How can I, can I, before, before you continue, because this show, it, I like inspiring the listeners and I just want, I just want to highlight what you just said. Here you are, you're someone who, you know, grew up in Texas, you studied finance, you didn't study tech. 
You got in Bitcoin really early. And yes, you got in Bitcoin really early. As as I did, there was definitely luck involved there, the right place at the right time. But here you are as someone who worked your ass, your fucking ass off over the past 10 years. You worked at three different crypto companies and you had three successful, you were part of three successful exits. Like that's a big deal. You don't need to have a tech background in order to be a part of to launch build and run tech companies you know what you need to be a hustler you need to be someone who says i will not give up until i get what i want now, i'm really glad you brought that up it's it's something that really resonates with me in terms of helping encourage people to get into tech i as i often you know phrase it i stumbled and bumbled my way into tech i, I love that i luckily that's the soundbite yeah. <laughs> yeah, that 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 is, you know, literally what happened to me. I, I had a lot of luck, but a lot, a lot of perseverance. I mean, I worked in that finance job, I worked 12 hour days. And then um, afterwards, I go work on zero block. So, you know, that took like an and I was new to the city as well. So I'm going out with friends, I'm going out to uh, dinners and, and out for drinks. So, you know, for me, it became an obsession, an obsession to solve this problem, a problem that I had. And that's typically where a founder begins is a founder begins by solving a problem they have. And, you know, I think when it comes to breaking into tech, uh, I might do a kind of a shameless plug here with my buddy startup. My buddy has a startup called career karma. And these guys are Ukrainian immigrants who immigrated to America when they were 11 and didn't speak a word of English, learned English, learned how to code. And they just went through Y Combinator with career karma and these guys are awesome, and they're a testament to how to break into startups, how to break into tech. And they currently provide services to help people get prepared for the uh, Code Academy exams. So they're kind of the step before you go to a Code Academy. So I'd encourage anyone who wants to go to like an engineering background to check them out. Um, they, they have the exact same story I do, and they're some of my best friends out here. So these guys are really, really sharp. But yeah, going back to Zero Block, you know, so Zero Block didn't, you know, at the time, no mobile product, especially, you know, iOS specifically, had real-time market data. No product had news feeds. I'm not sure, Charlie, if you remember the news feed. I remember the news feed. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot of news to feed, but I remember the news. <laughs> yeah, here's, here, yeah, you'll like this story. So I, I, w I hand curated the RSS feeds that we pulled into our news feed. And at the time, there was no Coindesk. <laughs> so, so we scraped our Bitcoin, the Bitcoin subreddit, we scraped the hot thread and that, and that was the news feed because there was no there was no coin desk there was no bitcoinist there was no any sort of type of media crypto publication um, i even remember when uh, ryan selkis with two bit idiot when he sent us a support email and he's like hey can you add my two bit idiot blog to uh, the news feed and i'm like oh great someone's writing a blog about bitcoin <laughs> so, you know, the it was all blogs and no one. I remember when like Coindesk launched and some of these other media sites, I was like you, I was calling them blogs. I never thought that the industry back then was big enough to warrant like a actual mainstream media type publication. Totally. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I hand curated what sources we pulled in. So, you know, I co-founded this with my buddy, Kevin Johnson. Um, and he's the iOS engineer. So I did everything else with growth and design and, and product. And so, you know, I sat down, I kind of wrote out, some, I downloaded every app I could find that was Bitcoin related. I mean, there were a few, but they weren't very well designed. They weren't very slick. Uh, they didn't have the functionality I wanted, for example, like the real-time market data feeds. So I wrote down the features I wanted. 
I started to sketch out what these screens should look like. And I did that by going on Dribble. Dribble is a designer showcase. And on this website, you can look at other UX UI designs of other mobile products. And so I sat down and I looked at what I thought looked cool and functional and simple. And from there, I actually knew Photoshop. So I did the full res designs in Photoshop because you can export those in PNG files. And what, what uh, do I want, you know, I, I'll, sometimes I'll throw questions out, but I, I want you to keep going on where you are. Sure. But what motivated you? And the reason I ask you that is because going back to the year 2013, um, there wasn't, there, you know, when you start a company, yes, you're right. You know, you're seasoned, you understand. When you start a company, you're, you know, your motivation is to grow this thing. You're solving a problem for yourself. And then you realize that the market also wants this problem solved. So you build a product for the market for yourself. I completely agree. It's like the best way. But when you start a company, you always have in your mind like an exit strategy or a business model. When you launch Zero Block, you didn't have a business model. And like, what was the exit strategy in like 2013? I mean, there were there were no there were no exits. There were no merger acquisitions. Hell, there were no anything. We were just a bunch of kids in our basements. Well, I think you highlight a really great point, which is that that early Bitcoiner culture was a culture of building. Like everyone, I think everyone in that space at the time was building something. And I felt like it was my responsibility to solve a problem that I had. And then I was hoping other people would have that too. Yeah. What do you mean a responsibility? Like a responsibility to the community itself? Yeah, I think at that time, like I felt like oh, I love that I wasn't doing something impactful unless I was helping build this new, you know, this new financial system, this new world for Bitcoiners. I think you're right. You know, um, I bet you if I called up Jared or or you know some of the people that you and I know, and I say, random question, going back to those years when you launched this company. What motivated you in terms of financially exit business model? I guarantee you almost all of them will say nothing. There's no, there was no, you're right. There was no, no. In fact, when I launched, when I launched Bit Instant, I was just worried about making enough money to, to keep the lights on and pay my people. It wasn't when the investors came, they're like, what's your exit? I was like, I don't even know what that means. What does that even mean? What kind of question is that? Yeah. You know, definitely. I think a lot of tech products start out as a kind of a hobby or a side project. And then those sometimes manifest into something much bigger. And that's certainly what happened here. It was kind of a labor of love to go build this, build this tool for the space. And, uh, you know, we <laughs> going back to some of the designs, this is, this goes back to the stumbling and bumbling part. So do you remember skeuomorphism in the app store, app store where apps looked like they had buttons or they looked yeah. like wood or felt? Yeah, absolutely. So back then that was actually the iOS recommended, recommended design guidelines and flat UI oh, became more popular a year or two later. So zero block was flat UI, kind of like the new modern apps that are slick and. Oh wait, so the app Apple recommended like within apps itself in those years. Um, I remember what you're talking about not a flat UI. So so for the listeners, if you think about an app right now and you have buttons within, and Dan, tell me if I'm wrong when I explain this. If you have buttons within the app right now, they're just they're flat. They don't look like they're 3D. Right. But back then, the guidelines were to have these kind of 3D buttons <laughs> within a 2D app. It, it, very weird. Yeah, it was very early iOS design standards. You know, people were like, "Oh, I guess we'll just make buttons look like buttons on a on a digital screen." <laughs> and uh, the so I designed it in flat UI, um, and most people th- consider that very forward thinking and very slick, very cool. But the reality was. 
I couldn't design anything with bevels or anything more complicated like the buttons be, buttons because I barely knew how to work Photoshop. <laughs> so so the app had to be super minimal That's and so the funny. designs had to be super super plain because I But we learned years later that minimal is what actually people want. No people don't want convoluted user interfaces. Yeah, what was funny is as I stumbled through this process of finding product market fit and building this product, I actually then later in my life would go formalize some of these product skills and that's where you know for example working on like uber's product team and uber's intelligence team uh you know really helped kind of solidify these uh these sort of uh growth patterns and techniques that i learned back building zero block one is about simplicity you know if you build the most simple onboarding funnel then you're going to convert users from an install to actioning in your product and becoming a monthly active user or whatever your engagement metric is if you make it super simple, they're going to find value in the product right away. You know, and if you remove friction from an onboarding flow or you remove friction from actioning in the product, then you're going to have more engagement. And so we kind of stumbled upon that by accident, but that definitely helped our our growth and our, our success as an app. And then um, as the years went by, I guess blockchain.info approached you guys and you got acquired by them and you decided to become an executive, the director of product. Nowadays, we know blockchain.info is one of the largest, longest companies in the space, huge company, hundreds of employees globally, um, doing a huge amount of, of volume revenue, you know, wallet blockers. What was it like back then? How many employees were there? All I, I know Mandrick worked there, but that that's about it. Dude, I, I was the next hire after Mandrick. Oh, that's so, and he talks about it. He was like the second employee ever, I think, or third or whatever. Yeah, Nick Carey was the first employee hired by Roger Beer. And then, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, Nick then worked with Roger to hire me. Actually, the, it was funny, the conversation to acquire Zero Block started with a DM on Twitter from Roger. How did that go? So, you know, Roger DM'd me and he's like, hey, what are your plans for Zero Block? Um, that might be, I, this is generally the details. I it's been yeah no one's holding you like verbatim yeah to this. this is yeah of course don't worry about it yeah and, and so then i was like well i'm not really sure and uh and nick started to read you know talk to me and he's like hey what do you think about a product manager role we'll acquire the product keep it alive and uh you know blockchain.info was the most popular wallet at the time and they were very mysterious as well. Like I never met anyone who worked at blockchain.info. I met a bunch of Coinbase people in SF. No one met anyone that worked at blockchain.info because there's one guy in Wales or whatever. Yeah, it's Ben Reeves out in, yeah. out in York. <laughs> so, you know, we uh, they approached me and were like, hey, we'd like you to come on and help kind of think through how we build out product. Um, and I was like, well, you know, I've I'm, I'm probably been doing this for like a year. We, I think we were all very new at that time. Like, not a lot of people wanted to work in Bitcoin because, and I say Bitcoin because that was really the only thing back then. We called it like the Bitcoin. No, and and I ha and I do this on 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 a, on a lot of the shows. I I use the word Bitcoin, crypto, and blockchain as one for the sake of these early conversations because I'm not really sure when, you know, because during my my year and a half or two years in prison, it there were a lot of like these whole buzzwords. So I went from like Bitcoin to blockchain to crypto. They were like stupid ones, like distributed ledger tech when i heard that in a business meeting with like i was in like a business meeting in like 2006 or 17 or 18 with one of these big companies like hyperledger one of these like permission blockchain aka google spreadsheet companies and uh 
They're like, yeah, the distributed ledger technology, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what in God's name is a distributed <laughs> ledger technology? Yeah. I walked out. I started laughing in the middle of the meeting. It was so funny. Yeah. It's, it, you know, a lot of people think, and we could go off on a tangent here, so I don't want to stray too far off the course, but, you know, a lot of people think that Bitcoin maximalists are like people who just saw Bitcoin and then didn't research anything else. But in fact, a lot of Bitcoin maximalists have seen everything <laughs> and have decided to pick Bitcoin. Um, you know, people, wow. like since I've been in since 2012, <clears throat> I've seen the rise of the 2014 altcoin bubble. Can you say that again? The beginning part, it was, that was a very interesting quote. You said that people think Bitcoin maximalists are closed minded and have seen nothing, but realistically Bitcoin maximalists have seen everything and they chose Bitcoin. That's, I mean, you said it verbatim right there. I'm going to, I'm going to like write that down and give you credit for that. That's a great quote. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because like a lot of people see me on Twitter and they'll be like, oh, Dan's just a closed minded Bitcoiner. And I'm like, dude, I mined PrimeCoin. I mined whole blocks of PrimeCoin. I, I've bought and sold a bunch of other crypto assets just kind of playing around. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I bought Ethereum in 2016. Like I, I went through these cycles of the 2014 altcoin bubble, the 2017 altcoin bubble. DLT and blockchain tech of 2015 to 2016 color me a little fucking skeptical, but like I deserve the right to be somewhat, you know, cautious and critical when it comes to new applications of blockchain tech. I just haven't seen a lot do that well. Um, and Bitcoin's TAM, which is all stores of value, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with being jaded and being critical. I mean, that's yeah. how I am. Well, what was kind of funny is, you know, to believe in something this long and to, to kind of weather through all of these other kind of faddish, like these, these fads of different narratives that have ebbed and flowed, it takes a lot of perseverance and it takes a lot of belief. And that's where I think hodling isn't just a Bitcoin, you know, a buy Bitcoin and I'll hodl it. I think hodling is like a life philosophy to, to take, you know, first principles thinking, evaluate something in your life, whether that be relationships or investments, and then choose to stick with it. Just choose to, you know, things take a long time to play out and hodling is about persevering. Do you think over time we get easier at, at holding? I feel like it gets harder. You know, you've, you've hodled longer than I have. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I had the ultimate hold. I had to go through the longest bear market, but yeah. uh, when I was in jail, I couldn't sell Bitcoin. So it was like the perfect hold. <laughs> I was living, I was eating and drinking for free. I was living for free. You were paying for, for me to hold for two years. Thank you. Oh, I well, appreciate that. Well, your tax dollars. Oh, you're welcome. I pay 40% <laughs> income taxes out here in San Francisco. So yeah, I definitely, I definitely, yeah, paid, paid for some of your, uh, I'm sure it was very tasty food. Um, I think it's like 50 K an inmate oh. per year or something. It's insane. The amount of money. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm early Bitcoin or libertarian type, so I definitely am against the prison system. And yeah, I think it's a, it's crazy how we lock up so many people and how much it costs the economy, et cetera. Um, but yeah, you know, hodling like requires like most people. So what, what I did is I took a on trading on trading view. You can create a time lapse where you start with uh, a price, and then every single candle is like every single candle represents like a week, but it passes by in a second. And the time lapse on trading view is a really cool thing that I did, and, and I put that on my YouTube channel. And basically, you know, people look at how we hodled, Charlie. Like. They go, oh, you got in at $10. Oh, that must have been so easy to hodl this whole way. And it's like, dude, the path from 10 to 1,000, there were so many dips, so many 
20, 30%. I lost so much money when the price pumped to $36 and then I, I bought it like 32 and, and I thought I was in the money when it went to 36 and then it went back down to 10 and I got wrecked, lost so much money. If you right. think about it, that the, the decrease from 36 to two is like uh-huh. 90 plus percent. Think about that for a second, everyone. Think about the price going from $20,000 back down to lower than 2000 Think about how to hold with that. And at that time, there was only Bitcoin talk. Like you didn't have a bunch of awesome, like, you know, Pompey sort of tweets. You didn't have... Pompey sort of tweets. <laughs> there wasn't like a big... He listens to this show. He's going to laugh at that. <laughs> I mean that as a compliment, you know. No, no, of course. There was no like rallying cry. You know, HODL wasn't even a meme. So, in fact, with the price dumping today a little bit, just like a few hundred dollars, I'm going to check Palm's Twitter to make me feel better. <laughs> exactly. There was no cultural community at that point. I and mean, there was a very small one, but there wasn't as nearly a strong one as we have today. There wasn't, I mean, there weren't any podcasts. There weren't, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of anything. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product, and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like, um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. Bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. All right, so I hope you didn't skip my ad because in the early part of the episode, we talked about how Bitpanda is working with us here at Untold Stories. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? I'll tell you why, so don't skip. Basically, what they're doing is to apply the same tech you're used to from Bitcoin to other digital assets. So, for example, you trade real precious metals like gold and silver on their platform 24-7 with ultra-low fees. And what's really cool is that you can trade gold and silver and these other precious metals with other assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptos that they support. So in a nutshell, Bitpanda is advocating the tokenization topic. So they want to bring financial products like stocks, ETFs, and more to everybody who uses their platform anywhere in the world. So check them out, bitpanda.com, support my sponsors, have a great day.
over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle, uh, Let me ask you a question. Yeah. You just said something interesting. You said this community isn't as strong as it is today. Is strong the word that you would use? Do you think we're strong? I mean, what type of adjectives uh, or, you know, what, what would you, how would you describe our community today compared to how it was back then? Yeah. And I mean strong in the context of like structural strength. So, you know, back in our day, there was only Bitcoin talk. We didn't have YouTube channels or podcasts or tweets or you know, people to really pump and rally and, and build confidence. We had to build confidence within ourselves. And that took immense fortitude and immense belief in Bitcoin. Um, you know, from there, there's also like, at that time, there's only Mt. Gox. I, I forget when Bitstamp came around. Was that 2012? Uh, I think it was actually 2023. I don't know the exact date. I, I, I have a vague recollection of 2013. Actually, no. I was in I was in Vienna in 2012, hanging out with Nath and Damien, the founders. So I think it was like late 2012. So I was there in June 2012, and the company had already launched. So people forget that you know, with efficient market hypothesis, which you know, I think it, I think efficient market hypothesis doesn't predict; it just merely uh, tells you what the current sentiment is. The price of Bitcoin at ten dollars reflected the world's aggregate belief in Bitcoin. That's why it was only $10. If people had felt differently, then the price would have been higher. And I think that's what a lot of people forget is when Bitcoin's price reflects that information, the aggregate belief in it. And so it was really hard to believe in Bitcoin, you know, during these very intense volatile swings when it was worth so little. You know, the average volume on a daily basis was was pennies compared to what we have now. You know, to get in and out of positions, you know, if you had markets sold a million dollars, you drop the price by like 10%. And... When Mount, you know, when when Silk Road got seized, you know that was a pretty, uh, you know, interesting moment because the hypothesis then was that reservation demand in Bitcoin or the the essentially demand for the currency was to buy drugs, and that's where I I really hope Roger would have would have been a little bit more data driven before he had uh, declared you know a civil war with Bitcoin and Bcash, but you know if he had simply looked at the data, Silk Road collapses. Bitcoin's demand increases exponentially and the price increases exponentially months later, which clearly indicate, <laughs> which very clearly indicate that Bitcoin's value is not derived from its utility and transactions. It's derived from the aggregate people storing value in it, the reservation demand. 
okay, let's talk about this for a second. Yeah. So this is a good metric. Let's let's name the metric. What do you what did you call it earlier? Uh, reservation demand. Okay, reservation demand. This is a good metric. So reservation demand is that a number? Let's just say we let's just let's just compare it to like the VIX for a second. You know the volatility index in the stock market. Is this something where the number? can constantly go up or down yeah, uh, you know it's really hard to like quantify this metric it's i know i know but for the sake of just fun and for the sake of you know scientific hypothesis and and for the people the listeners driving in their car um let's just say we try to like create a metric that's like uh not that we're actually going to do it but let's just say we want to create some sort of metric so from what i understand this is a number that yes would go up or down for example you wake up in the morning you see china's banning bitcoin all of a sudden the number goes down. This is a quant, it somehow needs to become a quantifiable number that with enough data can be averaged out. You know how I look at it? You know how I look at it? You know, you ever wonder how they do TV ratings or the, the Nielsen ratings? Almost like that. Like how do you rate individual TV shows individually on your own cable box rather than talking to the crowd um, when you rate something, when you rate something and it's private on a scale from one to 10, or there's a metric, but it's a private metric, as opposed to you telling someone else and getting feedback, the number is different. Yeah. So the way that I think about it is, you know, you could use UTXOs to try to quantify this. Um, you could look at like when the, I think Nick Carter has done some work on this where like, you can look at the last time that UTXO was moved and then determine that like. There's some, you know, there's some way to essentially like it's a combination of the HODL waves analysis from Unchained Capital, uh, plus some other UTO analysis of like last price moved. So the last price that the price of Bitcoin the last time that UTXO was moved. So that would be some way to quantify using on-chain metrics, uh, different waves of HODLers based on the cohort of when they've last moved that you know, when they've last moved those coins. That would give you some indication of how many people are either. Uh, accumulating positions or disposing of positions. Do you think, um, okay, so what about this other metric that I've talked about called token investor loyalty? And I don't attribute, I don't use it as a metric for Bitcoin, but I feel like what you're describing is is exactly that. But a metric that I've tried to quantify it with tokens is this similar to what you're saying. It's what's, how much loyalty, you know, how much has this, coin or token been around, um, Bitcoin included, and how much can it deal with bull and bear cycles? And the longer it's been around and the more cycles this coin or token goes through, the more token investor loyalty there is, therefore the number's higher, therefore it's something that I would be potentially interested in buying and holding. Yeah, you know, getting down token economics, we can go kind of down a long rabbit hole of uh, how to quantify certain things there. Um, but yeah, you know, with a store of value asset, it's basically who believes in the asset enough to store value. And value, you know, money isn't just these numbers on a sheet of paper. They're not numbers in your bank account. Money is the aggregate time and energy that you spent to earn it. And so storing your value in a ledger, in like Bitcoin's ledger, for instance, you're storing, you know, and sometimes if people put their entire life's worth and, you know, like their savings, all their savings into Bitcoin, they're choosing to store that value in that ledger and to put their faith and trust in it. And so that's what I think reservation demand really is, is, is the aggregate faith in this new store of value to be a store of value. 
Um, and people choose to take that time and energy that they've spent to earn it and store that in this ledger. And so that's where, you know, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but Bitcoin's you know purpose is freedom. It's really, you know, and Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation really touches on this eloquently. But Bitcoin, I think, is a human rights issue. It's the right to preserve your wealth and where no one else can seize it and no one else can tell you where, you know, you can or can't move it. You wrote a very interesting article called Quantum Narratives. Can you tell me a little bit about it? I was very intrigued this morning when I read it. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with Schrodinger's cat uh, kind of experiment. And that's not a real experiment. It's more of a, a uh, sort of a, a thought experiment. Like a pseudo experiment. Yeah, hypothesis yeah. or whatever. Yeah, so in quantum mechanics, essentially, the idea is that, uh, you know, if you if something hasn't been observed, then it exists in two, two states at the same time. So. Um, the Schrodinger came up with an with a thought experiment where they put a cat in a box with a radioactive material, and until the cat is observed externally by like a human, uh, the cat is actually both alive and dead at the same time, which is a really you know kind of a, really makes your mind kind of uh, you know really twist your mind a bit. But I took that analogy and loosely applied it to narratives in crypto. The idea being, you know, I've seen narratives ebb and flow like DLT and blockchain tech and the 20, you know, 14 altcoin bubble, which was like, you know, we experimented with you know, util- like coins that had more utility with proof of work, like prime coin, because it found prime numbers while doing proof of work uh, or, you know, faster or more units like Dogecoin. I never understood why prime coin uh, didn't, doesn't still exist. Uh, I must've missed something, but the concept of, like you said, mining having an actual utility instead of just trying to solve random, like being able to prime numbers and building this global supercomputer together. Why was why didn't that really take off? That was it's such a great concept. Yeah, and that's you know these reflect narratives. These narratives kind of drive interest in these new um, species of money. You know, Bitcoin is just a new species of money, and a lot of these coins like Dogecoin, Litecoin, even Ethereum are just variations of, you know, different genetic code uh, that manifest themselves via traits as a, as a money. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of these, if you think about like the Cambrian explosion, you know, there's a lot of organisms that, that died, you know, very, very few survive and you have to have superior genetic characteristics in order to survive in this new, uh, you know, thriving ecosystem of money. And I think these ideas represent like prime coin and, and Dogecoin, well, Dogecoin's still around, but uh, you know, a lot of these represent a lot of them died on the operating table. A lot of them, you know, survived for months or years and then died. And then, you know, they kind of reflected like what doesn't work. And that goes back to why I believe Bitcoin is so interesting and powerful is that we've seen tens of thousands of cryptocurrencies come and go. And you know, they might have tweaked one or two parameters. They might have tweaked one genetic characteristic, right? Well, I want to expand on it for a second because I read an article, I think it was yesterday this morning, talking about Ethereum and how the narrative, right, going back to narratives, the narrative on Ethereum is now that Ethereum is money. But that was never the narrative over the past, you know, I don't know, five years or whatever. It was always actually Ethereum is not money. I remember even Vlad Vitalik were saying that Ethereum is not money. Ethereum, is, But now it's Ethereum is money. The narrative has changed. Does that have anything to do with form versus function? What is why did the narrative for Ethereum change? That now it's money, like yeah. like trying to be like another Bitcoin when that was never about that. Right, which is totally bizarre. I 
I can't believe the Ethereum community is even bringing this up. But in my Quantum Narratives article, which I wrote in January 2019, you know, what I saw unfolding was that in this box, in this box, you know, Schrodinger's box, we got the cat and the radioactive material where there's multiple states at the same time. That's also reflective of narratives. So in this box, narratives can ebb and flow. You got DLT, blockchain tech, uh, DAP, world computer, whatever narrative you'd like. And these narratives can ebb and flow until the box is opened and critically observed. So when these narratives are critically observed, they collapse upon reality. And so what Ethereum is trying to do is when that box has been opened, the DAP, the DAP platform, the fundraising platform, the world computer narratives are dying. They're totally collapsing. And the Ethereum community is trying to pivot to the one real narrative, which is store of value. And that's why they're doing this. Why is it collapsing? Because the narratives are collapsing because there is nothing real behind it. It is not reality. Do you think that proof of this is a very loaded question? Um, and I have an opinion, but I won't tell you my opinion. And I'm actually happy that you you led me into this question. I didn't lead you into this. <laughs> do you think do you think proof of stake long term is actually sustainable? I've 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 been in debates as a as a um as someone who's uh been a you know I've watched debates I've not been part of the debates because I'm not a physicist but I've been watch I've watched debates where physicists argue that proof of stake actually defies the law of physics it says that energy can never and this is you know you've learned this in high school energy can never be created only transferred or destroyed yeah, that's a great question. So I wrote an article called "Proof of Work is Efficient," and that's actually my most pop that's my most popular article. And when I wrote this, I you know I I've always loved Bitcoin, and I spent a ton of time experimenting with other things, and you know going down the rabbit hole. But over the last year and a half, I really went down the rabbit hole where I start. I wanted to know everything comprehensively about different topics, like whether it be the block reward, or proof of work, or the role hodlers play, or narratives. I kind of explored everything. So, you know, proof of work is more about physics, not code. What Bitcoin does, you know, Bitcoin is essentially minted from energy, the fundamental commodity of the universe. So the energy is being transferred yeah. to Bitcoin. Proof of work is energy being transferred. This was the argument. Yeah. You know, a lot of people look at proof of work and say, hey, this is really inefficient. But in the real world, we build walls and vaults and castles and and tanks and defense mechanisms around things that we care about. In the digital world, how do we do that? And what Bitcoin does is it takes energy from the real world, which is unforgeable. You cannot forge this costliness. You cannot forge, you know, you cannot fake taking this energy. You have to do the proof of the work or the proof of the energy spent. And that's a physics-based, this isn't about code, this is about physics. That's what makes this so beautiful is that you take energy from the real world and you use that to build a digital wall around Bitcoin's ledger to preserve it and to protect it. And the only way to tear down that wall is by using the equivalent amount of energy. And that's- So why isn't proof of stake the same thing? I mean, aren't you using, in proof of stake, aren't you using computational energy? I mean, what, describe staking and why it's not, it won't work long-term to our listeners who won't fully understand it. Yeah, so staking is more of the uh, opportunity cost. For my, for the best of my understanding, it's the opportunity cost. So you opportunity cost loss, right? Of so, state, okay. Whereas, like proof of work is 
cost already incurred. So when a miner with proof of work begins to mine, they have to have upfront CapEx, which is purchasing the ASICs or the mining equipment. And they have ongoing OPEX, which is the electricity consumption. And those two essentially are the cost that the miner incur before they receive the block reward. With proof of stake, you take capital and you you stake it. So you essentially lock up this capital as a proof of opportunity cost potentially lost if you're malicious. And there's all sorts of issues with proof of stake uh, from kind of a fundamental, like you're not actually, it, it's the, uh, you're not actually proving that any energy was spent. You're not actually incurring any cost. You're just, you're staking in its future potential cost that you might be giving up given a, given a uh, moment where you get slashed, which is like they take your staking, they take your staking, the amount at stake and they slash it because you've acted improperly. Um, you know, one of the big issues is with, and this one's kind of a, I think a more simple uh, concept for people to get is let's say we turn off the internet, right? For uh, five minutes or an hour. And I think there's been some solutions of proof of stake with this, but I feel like a lot of solutions of proof of stake, once you solve that, there's more issues down the road. So let's say you turn off the internet for 10 minutes and then you turn it back on. With proof of stake, you require a subjective uh, party to then determine which chain is the legitimate chain. With proof of work, it's the longest accumulated proof of work. And so the whole system can reorganize itself right away. With proof of stake, it requires some subjectivity in terms of determining which chain is real. And so that, that for example, is one of the big issues. Um, you know, with the, uh, with the, you know, with, with capital, at stake, but no energy being consumed, no real cost being incurred other than like keeping the server on, um, you know, proof of stake, you know, has that fundamental problem of not having that real world cost tied to it. It's just got a digital cost. Uh, essentially, a lot of people call that, you know, so like if you look at, uh, you know, Bob Mc, McMath, I think it's yeah, Bob, Bob McGrath, if he's at uh, Fidelity. Uh, he's a physicist who runs all of their on-chain work over there. And essentially, he calls it like a perpetual motion machine um, to where there's no real world uh, cost associated with it. There's no energy spent. There's no, you know, you've got the servers, but those servers, I think, can be run on like a laptop versus, you know, really, really expensive. And so you've got this sort of delta between the real world and the digital world, whereas Bitcoin is constantly being anchored in the real world with real costs, whereas the other one is just a hypothetical um, uh, sacrifice of future potential value by staking it. I want to move on. Um, I want to move on to different subjects because we can go on for hours and we're going to run out of time soon. User experience and user interface. I can't believe that we don't talk about this enough. And let me preface why I feel like one of the biggest detriments for Bitcoin and for crypto in general is that down the road, people will say, or not say, but but you know, with their speak with their money in their minds, um, say the the, exp the user experience, um, how we use crypto, Bitcoin, uh, how it looks, and how good the infrastructure is is not good enough, and then and then you know it just kind of stays this niche techie thing. Now I don't think that will happen, but I'll tell you why I worry. I still feel like you know if you look at you know, and you'd be a perfect person to answer this, right? If you look at, look at, you know, I always kind of uh, go back to like the Simpsons. Remember when, when Homer was working in the nuclear factory and he had all these levers and he pushed random buttons. 
the way I kind of look at it with user, you know, I, I take user experience is super important. And then I look at the, on the other lever, privacy and security. Um, and I would even throw in like pseudo anonymity, but privacy, privacy is more important to me. Um, and I feel like when these companies in, in, in this space over the past few years are launching and building and growing, it's almost like, and, and I, and I hope I'm wrong and I want to be wrong, but I, I feel like it's almost like the, the, as the lever of privacy and two factor authentication and non-custodial and all the good decentralized stuff that we want as that increases user experience decreases and as user experience increases you know you look at all these custodial solutions that are nice looking and work nice and are fast the uh privacy security decentralized you know decentralization goes down um so first question is Am I wrong or right about that? That's the first question. But then the second question is, listen, you were part of, you were a co-founder in, in one of the first companies where user experience mattered. And then you decided to work on product at blockchain. That's a huge deal. But then you went to work at Uber for a year. And this is why I'm bringing this up. Nowadays, if you were to, if you were to ask someone, you know, I use Uber every day, Dan. I use it every <laughs> single day. I don't even... I don't even drink much. I just don't like driving at night if I don't have to, you know, I just, I I Uber everywhere. And largely the user experience, the security, the privacy, I feel comfortable enough. And I feel like it's, it's great. It's going to be, Uber is growing. It's constantly changing. I got an email today, actually, that now you can go back and do curbside pickups at SFO San Francisco, which is amazing. Um, where are we? Are we there? Is Bitcoin's user experience on par with Uber? Are we going to get there? Where are we at right now? Like, what's the deal? Why can't we have great UI, great UX, but also be non-custodial and have have great security? That's, that's a great question. <laughs> so, you know, my first wallet was the Bitcoin QT wallet back in 2012. And, uh, and the that was actually a full node, <laughs> so every time I had to use it, I had to sync up the sync up with the rest of the Bitcoin blockchain. So that was my first experience, and I'm like, "What the hell is a wallet dat file?" And my buddy's like, "Oh well, you gotta you gotta back that up just in case you you know something happens to your computer." And uh, we've come a long ways in terms of in terms of private key management. Um, you know, now we've got like titanium and steel backups for our mnemonic, which a mnemonic was a was a kind of a leap forward in terms of usability from a from a backup private, you know, backing up your private key. Um, you know, when it comes to like non-custodial blockchain.info in 2013 was pretty revolutionary where they took your encrypted private key that they store on their servers and then deliver that down to the browser and decrypt it in the browser to where they didn't have access to your your wallet, but you could still use their service to, you know, um, you know, you wouldn't have to spin up a full node. You wouldn't have to sync with the blockchain. They kind of handled that all for you. So that was a pretty big revolution. And then you had like the Coinbase's were, which were custodial. And each one of these represents a different type of user experience breakthrough and an improvement, I think, on a, on a trajectory towards mainstream adoption. And, you know, building some of these early crypto products and seeing how far it's come, I'm, I'm happy how far we've come. I'm also disappointed with how far we've come. I think we've gotten some good leaps forward, but for example, on like a Trezor or Ledger, sometimes they have firmware updates, and it's like, oh, I can't move my coins off of it. 
but it's going to wipe, it's going to wipe my wallet. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, whoa, this is a crazy user experience. No, it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, how many times are you using Bitcoin apps even now and, and coming so close to losing everything all the time? You know, people forget that like in the early OGs, you know, a lot of us lost a good chunk of Bitcoin just through errors. <laughs> you know, like you send it to the wrong address, you, uh, you know, you invested in some sort of scam project or, you know, you day traded it or you just straight up lost it. You forgot your password. You know, thank God I don't have that for me. I I, I think I would be tortured if I had like 10,000 Bitcoin on like a hard drive somewhere and I couldn't remember the password. I think that would just drive me nuts. Uh, Can we play that scenario out for a second? Like, <laughs> what would you do? Imagine, imagine knowing that I actually do know that I have like a hard drive. I sent someone. Okay. So like years ago, I sent a friend of mine. Um, and we were literally sitting together, my laptop and his laptop, and I sent him like 50 Bitcoin. It was actually probably one of the first Bitcoin transactions I ever sent, if I'm thinking about it now. Until today, we joke and I say, please find that hard drive. Like, <laughs> please find it. And he lost it. Like, it's, it, it's so lost that he doesn't even attempt to get it back. Like, it's just, there's no, it's impossible. Yeah, and I, and I I think Jared would be okay with me talking about this because he's mentioned it tons of times. Um, you know, yes, he, he spoke about about what you're about to say on the show too, so no okay. worries. Okay, cool. Yeah, Jared, I think overwrote was it 500 bitcoins on his hard drive. Yeah, um, he was too at the time. I think they were worth like a penny or something, and he was too lazy to move the, to spin up. You know, had to sync his Bitcoin full node and then move those coins to a new wallet. So we just erased the hard drive. <laughs> oh my god! There, there goes five hundred Bitcoin from the supply, right? So every time I hear that, oh, I'm sure he cringes as well. But Jared's a pretty chill guy, actually. He's probably the most chill person who's survived that long. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's funny. A lot of people think like OGs have tons of Bitcoin, and it's like, man, to hodl on this long, to believe this long. You know, if you bought it at a dollar and it went to ten, you just ten extra money. Like that was amazing return. Um, you know, the volatility, the chop, the, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the FUD, uh, all of this and, and you know mistakes that you made, it, it was super hard to hodl. It's not this easy thing where you just set it and let it. Um, you know, a lot of people had like bit rot happen where their drive or they store their Bitcoin, you know, decayed over time and they can't they can't get it back. So yeah, you know, user experience I think has gotten much better. I think multi-sig is kind of the holy grail. And that's where I really love what the guys at Casa are doing, the guys and gals over at Casa. Because, you know, single key management is really, really tricky. Um, and that's that's been kind of the primary way people have managed their own funds. Yeah, I think it's pretty scary, to be honest. I'm still, uh, I've been in the space for seven years and I'm still, I still get a little, my palms get a little sweaty when I start moving around my cold storage. So I think multi-sig is kind of the holy grail here where you can have failure with individual key management. You know, say you have uh, three keys and you lose one, well, you st you're still okay. Uh, the future I see is, is a, you know, where you've got like, you know, the three out of five or even more keys than that. And so you don't have to, you just have to trust that everyone you give a key to doesn't collude. And so you can give yourself a couple of those keys to where you could, one of you, you could lose one of your keys and you still be okay. Um, and so I think multi-sig is the kind of the future that most people will interact with Bitcoin with. I think that's a much more pleasant experience where you can fail, but not lose all your money, which right now and that's where i would push back on a lot of bitcoiners who advocate not your keys not your coins i'm like that's great i love the ethos of it in fact that's like a core ethos of bitcoin but if you're telling newbies that 
that's really risky. Like you, they need to know exactly what they're getting into that if they don't do this right, they're going to lose all of their money. And so I think that Bitcoiners should be reminded of that, that not your keys, not your coins is what we strive to do, but the intermediate steps to get there may not be the first initial step that people should take. That's a very good point. When someone is first starting out in the space and they want to start playing around and testing and they may not be buying tens of Bitcoin for for the long term. Wow, I can't believe I'm saying that. Tens of Bitcoin is like a large number. Yeah, no That's one, a lot of money for most people. No, it's a lot of it's a lot of money, even one Bitcoin. Um to definitely try to start on the easier and then eventually get more difficult. Um to end to end off, you know, a few like a month or two ago, you and I were sat next to each other in a wedding and it was a wedding of a fellow Bitcoiner. Um, and when it was really nice because I was there with my wife and we were all dressed up. And when I looked around at that wedding, we were sitting with like three, four rows of all Bitcoiners, all people that you and I have known for years and years and years. And I just felt like really blessed. And I felt really grateful to be a part of this community of people that we probably would have never even, you know, crossed paths or become friends if it wasn't for the space. And if we were in a different industry, like, I don't know, if we were in the paper business, we probably wouldn't have been at that wedding. You know what I mean? Like the, totally. there was no, so that camaraderie, that camaraderie was, uh, was and is so great till today. Some people do get burnt out. You know, we talk about Jared. If you call up Jared right now, he'll tell you that the, the space has, Give him, given him a little bit of burnout, although he, he still loves Bitcoin in the space. Did you ever struggle with that? Did you ever struggle with some days waking up and saying, God, just what am I doing here? Where, where am I right now? What's going on? Totally. I mean, that's why I left crypto in 2016 to 2017 when I worked at Uber. Um, I still loved Bitcoin. It wasn't like I, I was disillusioned with Bitcoin. It just there wasn't a lot to do. I mean, at that time, I was in a product role. And I don't even know if there's any product manager job openings in all of San Francisco for a Bitcoin company during the 20, you know, 2016 bear market. It was really dismal back then. And I'm sure you can remember, you know, it was it was tough. I, you know, I still believed, but to, to build a career in it was very difficult. And so I didn't become disillusioned, but I was like, hey, I'm not learning here. I'm not going to be able to get experience that I need. And that's why I went to Uber, where I felt really blessed to have this experience of seeing how the, one of the biggest products in the world is built, marketed it, and really, um, you know, how do you build products for hundreds, you know, like a, over a hundred countries. And so that was an incredible experience. And I felt like I had a responsibility to bring back that plus like the data-driven culture and other like product mindset back to Bitcoin and back to crypto. But that initial, that initial love fervor and ideology is largely gone, you know, nowadays with the newer space. How does Kraken, how is Kraken able to maintain that? I mean, every time I speak to Jesse, he is as, uh, you know, ideologically uh, grounded as he was seven years ago. Um, how are you in, in, in a world of, you know, Kraken is one of the largest Bitcoin and crypto companies in the world. You probably have to deal with governments and compliance on a daily basis. How do you maintain, how do you maintain that? How do you maintain that? Like just, we know why we're here, but then at the same time, like being stuck in the weeds every day with the bullshit of dealing that you have to deal with. Yeah. I think Jesse, you know, Jesse's a really, and this is why I admire Jesse and that I've, I was really happy. They're lucky to have you. 
Thank you, man. I, re- I appreciate you saying that. It, you know, I've known Jesse since early 13. Um, we know we're not like best buddies or anything, but we've stayed in touch over the years. And to kind of go back to your first point around the wedding and the, and the vibe with the Bitcoiners there, we've all gone through the same like warfare together. We're sort of like veterans. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. You're a thousand percent right. That's I, I feel that most of the time. Yeah, like we've seen Mt. Gox collapse. We've seen um, we've seen Silk Road get seized. We've seen all these things go bust and all the hacks and all the FUD and our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers going, oh, you're still into that Bitcoin thing? Isn't that dead? And we're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> even, till, even last night. Yeah. <laughs> People were probably calling Bitcoin dead today. You know, I had to explain to someone last night, um, this is a very good topic to end on. Um, I had to explain to someone. So last night I was having dinner with a friend of mine who, um, semi-retired guy, great guy, him and his wife, we had dinner and he didn't understand the fact that we have an industry. So that's what most people don't understand that this space, when we talk about the space and the industry, we're talking about a very strong global industry where there are tens of thousands of jobs and you could live off of it. And, he, and and this is what I'm going to end off and I'm going to shut up. Do you know what I feel today that I was never able to feel for, for years? In fact, even going back to like the day I was released from prison only three years ago, I couldn't say this with conviction. And tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm an idiot. But I feel like today I can sleep at night knowing that I'll we'll never have to find a job outside of the industry ever again. Meaning that we'll, there will always be an industry in crypto for us to work. Do you agree or do you disagree? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the uh, there's no going back from here, and and that's where back to the you know the early part of our conversation. I talk about the strength of the community. It's incredibly strong now. I mean, we've got you know fifty really strong exchanges across the world, and Kraken and Coinbase and and other exchanges are really robust. And, you know, Kraken's at 800 people. I mean, I remember when it was at a dozen. Uh, so, you know, pretty wild to see where we've come in the, in the volumes and the number of entrepreneurs and the capital being invested into crypto startups. And you've got everything from payroll software to analytics to, you know, you've even got software providers for crypto companies. And so, yeah, this, this space is strong and robust. And I'm, I'm totally confident that, this is going to continue to grow. You know, right now we're in a lot of sideways chop. I think, you know, people are feeling very disillusioned and don't worry because we've all felt this before. All of the OGs have felt this. We felt it many times. I mean, I've seen my net worth exponentially rise and collapse 80% three times. <laughs> and so, and you've done it four times. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> you know, to believe in this requires the utmost conviction and, you know, People go, oh man, you know, I just bought at eight thousand and it just went to seventy six hundred. Dude, I bought at fucking, you know, uh, two sixty and it went down to a hundred, right? So along the way, we've all experienced the dip. We've all experienced the dip. We've experienced the FOMO, and after surviving this, you will be a much better investor, a much better friend, and a much better person just through your ability to understand fear and greed and fight that urge and just be kind of better at at kind of seeing the world through a clearer lens. Dan Held, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dan Held, the business direct uh, director of business development over at Kraken. So happy that, um, you know, when we sat next to each other at that wedding a few months ago, you couldn't tell me the details, although you told me that you had something exciting to tell. 
And this this couldn't have been better news for you and also for Kraken. I'm super proud of you. And thank you again for, for taking the time out, for coming on the show. I appreciate the kind words, Charlie, and uh, really excited that we could sit down and talk today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.